HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. It's almost time for Super Tuesday, the day in the primary calendar when the most delegates are awarded. To get ready for this pivotal moment in our nominating process, we have stories about how food and electoral politics are inextricably linked, not only here in the U.S., but in countries around the world. We'll take you to Australian polling booths that feature a special sizzle and to a diner in New Hampshire that regularly hosts future presidents. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. We begin with a story about the primary system here in the U.S. Rowan O'Connell Gates speaks with a photojournalist from Eater whose work captures the role food plays in our election cycle, from picture-perfect to downright disastrous. Well, with any celebrity or a government official, there's always this kind of palace intrigue, or as uh, Us Magazine kind of puts it, it's like, oh, they're just like us, right? And so. You may not understand like a trade agreement or a healthcare bill or what have you, but you understand how to eat a corn dog or what a slice of pizza is or what a diner is, right? Like everyone eats. It's the most relatable thing that you can do. That's Gary He. As a freelance photojournalist, he's regularly covered American politics. And of late, he's been a leading voice in the surge of food-based campaign coverage. The executive editor of Eater has known me since college, and I've been covering politics on and off since 2004 during that presidential election. And then in 2008, I had gone to Iowa to cover you know, the Obama versus Hillary battle. And so when they were thinking about which photographer to send to Iowa and beyond to do this kind of food slash politics coverage, I obviously was like top of the list. But why is there any need for political food coverage in the first place? To answer this question, one must look back at our nation's past presidential campaigns. For years, candidates like John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump have used food as a way to connect with voters. And often, 
the easiest way for them to achieve such a connection is by documenting their travels to a state's finest barbecues, diners, and bakeries. That's where he comes in. For the Iowa State Fair, you're kind of in this scrum of all these other cameras. And the candidates know that they are there to eat for the cameras. And so it's not weird or out of the ordinary at all for you to be about two feet away from someone shoving food in their mouths. In early February, he traveled to Iowa's famed state fair to cover the candidates' food choices as they prepared for the Iowa caucus. The fair is over 150 years old and is regularly featured as a kickoff point for candidates to share their eating habits. Upon arriving, he snapped meme-worthy shots of Cory Booker gleefully consuming deep-fried PB&Js, Pete Buttigieg devouring a pork chop on a stick, and Bernie Sanders tentatively biting into a corn dog. I think the candidates sort of felt weird in the beginning. Uh, you can kind of feel like this tense energy. But by the end of like the day or the second day, they were kind of into it and almost kind of hamming it up for the camera. After Iowa, the candidates leave behind the deep-fried treats of America's Midwest and move east to New Hampshire, where the election food pilgrimage continues at a much smaller venue, the Red Arrow Diner. Located in Manchester, the diner has been hosting presidential candidates for nearly 20 years and has served the likes of John Kasich, Barack Obama, and now, Pete Buttigieg. On the surface, appearances at the Red Arrow Diner and Iowa State Fair are a no-brainer. In doing so, candidates attain positive media coverage and a chance at charming the undecided voter. However, chowing down in public doesn't always go according to plan. Part of eating in front of the camera is like risk versus reward, right? Why they do it is to appear extremely relatable, but also if you eat the food incorrectly, people know because people know that you don't order a Philly cheesesteak with Swiss cheese as John Kerry did back in the 2004 cycle. In addition to food mishaps, candidates can cause a stir when faced with the unique traditions of each restaurant. At a place like Red Arrow, most play along. But in the past, some candidates have sought to control their own narrative. Whenever they notice that someone is new to the Red Arrow, they'll actually ring a bell midway through your meal and announce the entire diner that you're a Red Arrow virgin and force you to put on a sticker that says, I've been de-virginized at the Red Arrow. And most candidates will gamely just slap the sticker on them. But the Clinton campaign back in 08... Uh, visited the Red Arrow and told them that she would not be participating in the ritual. With Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada in the rearview mirror, the Democratic primary race is heating up. Andrew Yang is out. Bernie Sanders is surging. And with each passing week, campaigners are looking for the next edge. Much like the campaign trail, candidates' food choices are rapidly changing. Tom Steyer has gained notoriety for his Nevada caucus taco truck, and Michael Bloomberg is making waves by supplying his campaign attendees with a luxurious spread of foods. I uh, have a piece that's dropping, I think, in the next two days about how Bloomberg is feeding people at all his rallies. <laughs> it's a strategy that few other candidates have deployed, but because he has the budget, 
uh, seems like a classy thing to do, I guess. In today's world, where anyone can capture an incriminating image or publish a flattering story, the presence of food in a political campaign holds increasing significance. As evidenced by Buttigieg's now famed cinnamon bun consumption, older traditions like the Iowa State Fair and Red Arrow Diner can still make or break a candidate on the campaign trail. But with new cash field ventures like Bloomberg's buffets and Steyer's tacos, could candidates be one step closer to controlling the media's finicky food narrative? I think candidates will continue eating food in front of the cameras in future elections because it's worth the risk, right? Like Pete Buttigieg's numbers did not drop after the cinnamon photo went viral. If anything, he pulled number one in Iowa for the first time, like the week after that whole, I guess, controversy happened. So there isn't really that much damage if you just kind of embrace it. But at the same time, you know, John Kerry could never shake that image of being a coastal elitist when he ate uh, that cheesesteak with Swiss cheese on it. One never knows. Learn more about Gary He's current and upcoming election coverage at eater.com. Next up, Kevin Chang Barnum takes us to Australia, where the country's love of barbecuing meat has led to a very unique culinary tradition that happens only on Election Day. Head to voting booths on Election Day in Australia, and there's a good chance you'll hear the sound of sizzling meat. The source is something called democracy sausage. It's a food commonly sold by volunteer groups trying to fundraise while people vote. In the 1980s, when portable barbecues started to become widely used in Australia, portable gas barbecues, these volunteer groups started selling sausages, barbecued sausages, in a, in a bread roll with onions and tomato sauce or mustard. That's Judith Brett. She's a retired politics professor whose book, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting, came out in 2019. She says that in recent years, democracy sausage has become especially popular. And so since about 2012, this has really taken off. People um, asking, where are you going to get your democracy sausage today? Or posting photos, photos of themselves on Instagram eating their democracy sausage. Democracy sausage was the Australian National Dictionary Center's word of the year in 2016. A website mapping which polling places have food options helped grow Democracy Sausage's popularity. A young group of friends decided that they would put up a website which told voters where which polling booths had sausages available. Keith Moss helped start that project in 2013. A few of us um, were having some bottles of wine the night before, and one of us thought, um, why is it so hard to work out where to go to vote, um, where you can find a cake or a sausage and so forth? Voters can use the website Keith worked on to find out how volunteers plan on spending the money they raise. They might want to um, put up a new basketball hoop or repaint one of the school buildings. One of the reasons a map of sausages is useful is because in Australia, voters have options about where they cast their ballots. We're not obliged to go to a particular polling booth where we're registered. We can vote anywhere in our state. Australian elections are different from other countries' elections in further ways, too. Showing up on voting day is required by law, 
And that contributes to sausage sales. We've got about, I think it's 90, 95% um, voting attendance in, in Australia, which is pretty unique around the world. Judith says the prevalence of fundraisers also has to do with when people vote. And what enables this is the fact that we vote on Saturdays, which means that people go down to the polling booth with their kids or on their way to the shops or the beach. Australia's unique laws and culture have made the sausage a symbol of the day when the entire country heads to the polls. You're all in this process of choosing the government together. From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage is available in both print and e-reader formats. To see the website that Keith helps run, you can go to democracysausage.org. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after this short break. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated palm house and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Executive chef Sarah Flynn's unique menu includes modern dishes with global flavors with a focus on local and seasonal ingredients. Welcome back to Meet and Three's Super Awesome Super Tuesday episode. Our next story comes from the Speakeasy. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music. Host Southern Teague spoke to Bailey Pryor, a documentary filmmaker and founder of Real McCoy Rum. Their conversation took place on the 100th anniversary of the 18th Amendment, which enacted prohibition. Pryor covers major historical ground and compares our current politics with the cultural climate that led up to prohibition. Tomorrow, 16th of January, is the 100-year anniversary, the centennial, of the enactment of prohibition. That's correct, yes. This is the 100th anniversary of the enactment of the, of, the, of the law that said our government has decided and our people have gone along with the silly notion that we're not going to drink in this country. That's exactly right. And like when we're in the political climate that we have today, it like, seems so shocking. We can't agree on anything. And somehow we all agreed that we just weren't going to drink. Actually, we didn't agree. Yeah, that's what I want to get into. Yeah, yeah. Less, less so, than about 20% of the population actually voted in that election. Less than 20%? Less than 20% of the populace of America, yes. That's... Well, there was there were some reasons for that, right? A lot yeah. of people weren't allowed to vote, vote then. Still, yeah, it was access. It was information. People didn't even know it was voting time. You know, there there are a lot of reasons behind it for sure. But the 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 real thing about it was it was the first time in American history when there was a political action committee, and they were called the Anti Saloon League. There were these three different forces that came together to get prohibition to go through, and and it took decades for this to build and build and build to this point. But essentially. It was a very, very sophisticated organization, and so they were religiously motivated, but they were also basically the 1% in America, so sort of wealthy white men who owned everything. So they were rallying to get political control um, and political positioning in America. So they wanted to get people into Congress and all that kind of stuff for their agenda. And at the time, you could consider that essentially a gallon of whiskey was the equivalent of a dollar or even two dollars at the most in today's dollars. That's how much excess alcohol was being produced. So you had people not paying the rent, they were just 
drinking and that you had people who didn't have jobs that could still get their hands on the stuff and so it was a little bit crazy right life was hard yes and drinking was cheap and there was a lot of you know there was a lot of immigration issues people were saying a lot of the same things that you were seeing today with you know they're coming over here to take our jobs it was kind of the build the wall thing was happening at the same time then uh, they they in new york city especially they would say things like they put up signs that said nina n i n a which which stood for no irish need apply right so there was you know there were groups of people that were very resentful of folks coming into the country and some of those people felt dejected some of those people had different reasons for doing what they did and then and it turned into something that wasn't so great and and then you have the class issue, the 1% wanting this, while the 99% doesn't get that. So all of these things seem to be surprisingly similar, actually, 100 years later. It, it kind of blows my mind. And the whole time that I was making the film, uh, this resonated with me. And it led to an incredible um, melting pot in American society that I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about, but I think was, was very real, and that was the speakeasy. It was, a, it was a, a more contentious time, and I'm talking about the early and middle 19th century. But now you're going into these speakeasies, and there were a lot of them in New York, where people would come into these places and there'd be women unescorted, there would be people of different ethnic groups, and everybody just made it happen, but comprised of all these new people coming to America. I just think it's amazing. For our last story, Ruby Walsh looks at how a British politician's career was derailed by an unfortunate encounter with a bacon sandwich. In the UK, the bacon sandwich is a staple. Every morning, sleepy Brits from across the nation start their day by lining up to buy one from the local shop. The sandwich is uncomplicated and uncontroversial. Yet, when politician Ed Miliband was photographed eating one in 2014, it became national news. I sat down with London-based journalist Zoe Cormier to find out why the bacon sandwich incident captured the public's attention. Ed Miliband ate a bacon sandwich, and that's it. That should not be a story. In the papers, however, it was a big story. The unflattering photo of Miliband mid-chew was featured in the Evening Standard and eventually made its way into the tabloids. The Sun put that photo on the cover. The cover! And the weird thing is, the photo isn't that bad. He's not drooling or holding the sandwich wrong, and his face isn't smeared with ketchup. Miliband looks like everybody else looks while they're eating. Awkward. In 2014, Miliband was the leader of the Labour Party, he was gearing up for a general election against the conservative Tories. According to Zoe, right-wing papers had long been trying to portray Miliband as unfit to lead. Media was constantly trying to pick on him and constantly trying to paint him as being out of touch and awkward and nerdy. The photo was the perfect piece of evidence. It became a meme online. People started mocking him ruthlessly, constantly. And the fact that it was a bacon sandwich and not any other kind of sandwich implied that he had an awkward time eating something that a working class person eats all the time, implying that he's posh and out of touch. Going viral certainly didn't help Miliband's case. But is it possible that a silly picture derailed an entire campaign? I spoke with writer Chris Parkinson, who regularly gives a hilarious talk titled The Eating Habits of Politicians. He told me that the incident was taken very seriously by the Labour Party. After the election, Labour didn't win. The Conservatives won the election. And 
Labour produced a 70-page document looking into why they lost and what they could improve. Two whole pages of that document were, were titled The Bacon Sandwich Incident. And other British politicians took note. What's quite astonishing is the shockwaves that it put through the political establishment. Like um, Ed Miliband's main opponent, the Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron, was pictured about a week after this incident eating a hot dog in a bun with a knife and fork because he was so afraid of also having a photograph of him struggling to eat a bacon sandwich. The bacon sandwich incident sounds like a pretty unusual case, but it can't be dismissed as a bizarre one-off. Ed Miliband's story reveals that food is crucial in crafting political personas. Incidentally, there's a politician you may have heard of who is Nigel Farage, who led the party UKIP, which was the one that campaigned for the referendum for Brexit. Nigel Farage loves to be photographed drinking pints of brown beer and eating things like bacon sandwiches. And he's always trying to posture himself as a man of the people, as somebody who's really working class and in touch with the needs of, quote, ordinary voters with that promised brand quality, quote, authenticity. In fact, actually, Nigel Farage is super posh and went to Eden and is as upper crust as they come. It's all an act. So did the sandwich debacle really cost him the election? Chris isn't so sure. It depends whether you think if he hadn't eaten the sandwich or if the photo didn't exist, he would have become prime minister. Britain wouldn't have left the EU. Um, There wouldn't have been a referendum called. Um, The whole timeline of history could be completely different if Ed Miliband had eaten a sausage roll. I think there are actually other elements that led to Labour not winning the 2015 election, but it's a very interesting alternative timeline to start thinking about. It's worth noting that the bacon sandwich didn't permanently stain Miliband's reputation. He remains a member of Parliament to this day, and he has a pretty good sense of humour about the whole situation. When Theresa May was photographed struggling to eat fish and chips, Miliband playfully tweeted that they should talk. That's our show. Thanks for listening. And thanks for getting out and voting this campaign season. Tune in next week to hear some highlights from last year's Charleston Wine and Food Festival. And make sure you tune in to our live coverage this year at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks this week to Rowan O'Connell Gates, Kevin Chang Barnum, Souther Teague, and Ruby Walsh. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea for us or just want to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc.